Welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. This episode titled, Why Learn About Global Surgery is part of our Global Surgery series. I'm Cynthia Choya, one of your hosts today, and I'm joined by Josh Wiederman as my co-host. We have two fantastic guests with us today to challenge maybe the most important topic that we'll talk about in our early sessions. So today to talk about why we should learn about global surgery, we have Brian Westerberg and Dr. Johan Fagan. I'll start by introducing Brian. Brian is a neurotologist and clinical professor. He's also the director of the Brand for Global Surgical Care, which offers both a certificate and a master's degree. He completed residency in otolaryngology with subsequent fellowship training. He has a master's degree in healthcare and epidemiology with a particular focus in global surgery. This is demonstrated by his role as the medical director of the Zimbabwe and Uganda Hearing Healthcare Programs. He is also active in outreach to rural and remote communities within the province of British Columbia, Canada, with primarily underserviced indigenous populations. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Cynthia. Looking forward to the session. Next, we have Johan Fagan. He has devoted much of his career in advancing otolaryngology training in Africa and developing countries. He has established fellowship training programs at the University of Cape Town and founded the African Head and Neck Society. He maintains an educational website for ENT surgeons in the developing world and self-publishes two open access textbooks in otolaryngology. He has received the International Federation of Otorhinolaryngological Society's gold medal and Nikhil Bahat, MD International Public Service Award by the AAO for his contributions in otolaryngology. We're honored to have you both here today. Well, thank you very much for having us. Well, you know, having the both of you here is extremely meaningful to me. Not only do you have such diverse backgrounds and experience in this field, but I look up to both of you uh, immensely in my own uh, profession and as I'm developing my own sense of what global surgery means to me. I have had the pleasure of working with Johan for um, almost two years now uh, with the establishment of of global OHNS and in been privy to all his wonderful ideas on on how to improve uh, global surgery within our specialty. And when searching for a way to improve my own knowledge about global surgery, Brian was kind enough to say, hey, why don't you try our our master's track that he is uh, in charge of at University of British Columbia. And I've been in that for about two years now uh, and have learned an immense amount about what global surgery means from every level, bottom all the way to the top. So both of you have very meaningful impacts on on my career, and and thank you for joining. What I wanted to start with, our first episode, we were with Blake Alkire and Key Park, and we discussed how global surgery kind of morphed from these individual efforts in what used to be considered mission trips, and now has escalated to complex academic and systematic approaches to global surgery that was really visualized with the Lancet article in 2014 that showed all the disparities that exist in global surgery. 
So keeping all of that in mind, I'd love to hear very broadly from the both of you of why do you think global surgery is important for us to pay attention to, given your guys' experience? And Brian, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I, I think it behooves us to, first of all, look at how we define global surgical care. Um, I think there was a time when the the image in our minds was that of uh, missions in quotation marks and and traveling somewhere and 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 sharing our expertise. And I'm not sure that that's true today. I, I think the definition of global surgical care needs to be expanded. The most pressing issue I think today for healthcare is really planetary health and climate change. And, and that needs to fall under the, the umbrella of, of global surgical care and, and all that it defines. You know, healthcare is responsible for something like uh, 5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. That's on par with the aviation industry, which we always are pointing fingers at. And I think it behooves us to look at ways of providing surgical care in a more uh, sustainable, more uh, effective manner with, with less impact on, on planetary health. So I, I, although I think the international outreach is part of it, I don't think it has the same emphasis. And I, th I think as a result, more and more people are now looking to it as a means to an end, as a means of improving all of our well-beings whether it's in a lower resource setting or a higher resource setting or a, a poorly serviced area in a high income country, however you want to look at it. I think that's a, a fantastic perspective and, and a little bit of foreshadowing. So thank you. We will have a, a later episode on how the environment impacts global surgery. Uh, and and I, I, I love how broad your definition is as well. You know, most learners, when they come into global surgery, they see, okay, how can the global north come to the global south uh, into a lower middle income country and affect change? And a lot of change can occur without ever doing that. So I appreciate that. Johan, what's, what's your perspective? Global surgery for me is about pursuing social justice. And by social justice and healthcare, I refer to achieving uh, achieving equitable access to healthcare and healthcare education. So, regardless of of your geographic location, your social class, or your personal income, and and for me, it's an it's an everyday lived experience as we have have such great disparities in access to quality care and also educational opportunities in Africa. So in otolaryngology, um, we should be reminded that lower and middle income countries account for about 80% of head and neck cancer deaths and about 80% 80, 80 of patients with, with significant hearing loss. So, so improving access to otolaryngology care in lower and middle income countries um, is really the low hanging fruit where we can all make a real impact through global surgery initiatives. So um, we really need to look beyond our day-to-day -day clinical practice, um, our region and our country, and also get involved with global surgery programs to improve equitable access to healthcare. And so um, having, having knowledge and experience of global surgery is also important as it puts into perspective how privileged um, so doctors and patients are to live, uh, live and work in high-income countries. And, uh, and should change how we view the enormous inequality that exists in the world and how to engage with it. So that's really my, my perspective, is really about achieving social justice. 
another beautiful response and social justice is a very important concept that exists in all global medicine. How would you consider global surgery different from global health or public health? Johan, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think the two are clearly very, very closely connected. And uh, there's always the risk of functioning in silos. And um, so we really need to talk to our colleagues um, outside surgery, beyond surgery, um, if we're going to have a, have a comprehensive response um, to these, these global challenges. Brian, anything to add? Well, you know, you, you talk about the differences, and yet I think it's more important to focus on the similarities, perhaps, Josh, right? The, you know, it's all about, as Johan um, articulated, the social justice aspect. And, you know, part of that is advocacy. And how do we, as physicians, as surgeons, advocate for those who perhaps are less able to advocate for themselves? And um, I, I think it's more the similarities that we should be looking at. You know, surgery certainly presents its challenges, doesn't it? Um, you know, Johan has been amazing at training people to to return to different countries throughout Africa. And the, the challenge, of course, is when they get home, having that infrastructure in order to perform those things that they learned in South Africa with him. And and, and I think that's probably more uh, acutely uh, prominent in surgical care rather than uh, medical care, if you will. And yet, yet the two are so intertwined. I, I don't think you can have one without the other, can you? Absolutely. And that that kind of brings up a, a very challenging perspective that I'd love to see your guys' responses on this. So when I when I lived in Ethiopia, what I started to to notice, and and now after working with with Brian's master's program, I can articulate it. But what I started to notice was the three delay system in in a very astonishing fashion, in which type one delay is the decision in which to seek healthcare, realizing that you have a problem that you need medical help with. Type 2 delay is the amount of time it takes for someone to go from that decision to seek care to actually getting to the correct institution in which to receive that care. And that includes financial barriers in which to make that happen. And then finally, type 3 is you get to that institution and either the wait is so long, there's so many people in front of you, the institution doesn't have resources, it doesn't have their correct specialty uh, or they perform incorrect surgery in this case. All of those disparities to healthcare can often be designated into those delay systems. So I was seeing that happen, but at the same time, I was working in the quaternary hospital of, of the country who, who's supposed to have all of the specialists in the highest quality of care, but there certainly wasn't the highest quality, and there were certain conditions in which we couldn't treat effectively. So in my world, or in my mind, rather, I call this the chicken and the egg philosophy, the difference between access to care and quality of care. What needs to happen first for the other one to work, or do they need to happen simultaneously? And do we need to do that by education? building expertise on the ground or policy from above? Or is it a mix of all of this? And that's a super convoluted question with a lot of different parts, but I'd love to hear some stabs at the, at the answer. Uh, Johan? 
Well, Joshua, well, uh, well, I think what you've highlighted there is uh, is the challenge when colleagues from first world countries um, reach out to lower income countries, and that is that is applying your management pathways in, in resource constrained settings. Um, I'm not sure if you're, you're familiar with our African Head and Neck Society uh, treatment guidelines um, uh, for head and neck cancers, where we've tried to stratify our management according to the available resources. And so um, you know, I always am concerned when people speak about, about the gold standard of care being that which is in North America or in Europe. But to me, the gold standard of care is doing the best with your available resources and uh, and uh, and what's affordable to the patient. And and so that's where the challenge lies. And the other big issue which you've highlighted too um, is priority setting. And um, so when you've got limited resources, um, it can be very difficult in Ethiopia, for instance, to decide who to treat and who not to treat. And these are really, really key issues which we haven't addressed adequately to provide some some ethical and moral sort of guide so guidance both to resident surgeons and uh, and clinicians and also to visiting surgeons and clinicians how you um, how you select patients for for treatment um, in a resource constrained setting. And Brian, yeah, Josh, you're a smart guy. Clearly, if there was an answer to the question, you would have had it by now. So um, I, I think it's an important question to raise, but not an easy question to answer. And you know, I, I think Johan has sort of alluded to the fact, you know, the questions to ask are, are where are the needs perhaps, and then what are those needs? And I think so often we, uh, we meaning uh, in the high income countries, impose our needs on others' needs and misinterpret what is actually needed and what is effective in any, in any setting. And, you know, we've we have the examples of that within Canada, of course, with our indigenous populations. You know, indigenous peoples within Canada lived here for millennia before uh, colonization occurred, and 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 the, all of that knowledge, all of the beliefs and culture was pushed aside with the belief that Western, uh, the colonizers, had a better way of doing things, and it's only now I'm thinking that perhaps we've come to the realization that that's not the case, and all those populations and all that knowledge that was marginalized hopefully can be rediscovered and uh, to the benefit of all and you know how you how you do that of course we're struggling with with the whole truth and reconciliation within Canada um, and you know I speak of Canada but it's part of the global surgical community and and, and I don't think the issues are are germane to just Canada either I, I think that whole, interrelationships between cultures and populations is really important to think about uh, wherever you are and whatever you're doing or whatever you think you can accomplish somewhere. And I think that's what Johan was alluding to as well. Yeah, perhaps I can follow up as well. You know, I was I was a member of a global panel only a week ago, and um, I was the only person from outside the UK and Europe and, and North America. And we went through a whole lot of case scenarios of head and neck cancer. And um, and for instance, for a T1 or T2 floral mouth tumor, they recommend a CT scan of the neck. And I said, well, you know, there's just no point in doing that. You're going to treat the neck anyway. But uh, um, and and now what these global panels don't always realize is that if you're in Ethiopia, that patient needs to pay out of pocket for the CT scan, and that might might push push that family into into poverty. And so it, it just highlights um, the the complexities of um, um, also now through through webinars 
um, run from first world countries that we might actually be skewing treatment and actually doing harm rather than good if we don't understand the local context. Yeah, and it, you know, just to follow up on that, Johan, too, is you know, we do we have the same problems within Canada. Like I see it time and again with you know chronic otitis media, therefore CT scan and um, or an MRI scan, and, and I'm just astounded at the number of times that we're ordering things that is covered by our public healthcare system. Uh, the patient doesn't pay out of pocket for it. And yet we are paying for it. And I think approximately 50% of our provincial budget is now going to, to health care. And that, that's just not a sustainable commitment, financial commitment. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I appreciate it's a magnitude greater in the lower resource settings, but, but we're struggling with how we are going to deal with it also in a high resource setting. And I think it behooves us all as part of the idea, the concept of global surgical care is the concept of how we can do the same, uh, arguably, with fewer financial commitments. Thank you both for those uh, comments and perspectives. I think it really highlights that in order to be involved in global surgical work, you really have to take on a different mentality and kind of take yourself out of your context and think about what works best and where you're going. And so I wanted to bring in the element of learners and residents, medical students, et cetera, from high-income countries wanting and being eager to participate in on-the-ground work. Um, and you're highlighting how a change in mentality is really important for that. What other elements do you think would constitute a solid foundation for starting on-the-ground work in addition to having a different mentality? Johan, I'm looking forward to hearing your comments on that one. You sort of see uh, perhaps more than I do. Well, there's so many, uh, you know, there are many ways in which one can contribute to improve access to healthcare, which is really what we're trying to achieve. Um, as you know, I'm a strong advocate of open access, internet-based education and training. And um, ENT, in a nutshell, I think is an excellent example of how one can share knowledge globally, as are all the free educational offerings available on the internet. And um, I, I also publish um, two open access ENT textbooks and have now started placing sociological videos on, on YouTube, which has also proved to be popular. You know, so I would really, um, really encourage uh, young people to get involved through their societies, um, through their local uh, departments and through their, their global surgery departments. Um, but I would, I would be very careful about not working through a, um, through a recognized or an organized body, you know, because you don't want to fall into all those pitfalls, you know, and apply, apply high income management pathways, low and middle income countries, for instance, and thereby do harm. So I, I really encourage young people to, um, to engage with the, with the American Head and Neck Society and the, uh, and the American Academy of Otolaryngology and, and other recognized bodies um, and to get, get involved that way. Yeah, I think I would <clears throat> I would echo those comments as well. I think there was a time when uh, students would travel to low resource settings and uh, and be put in situations where perhaps they were not appropriately trained to deal with them. And if they were particularly a white male in those settings, I think they the assumption was that they knew more than they they did. And I would really caution uh, students about doing that. When we have traveled, we 
generally have not taken medical students with us. We've often taken a resident, but I sit down with the resident beforehand and I say to them, you know, point blank, that they will not be operating in these low resource settings where we're going to. Their, the role that they will have is simply to see healthcare in a, in a setting that is different that we currently focus on. Uh, that we currently work in and, and to try and learn what they can from that setting. And, you know, there have been examples of techniques which have been applied in lower resource settings, where which have expanded to high resource settings. And I think it behooves us to look at the way different people approach different problems, because there's always lessons to be learned there. And, and as a trainee, I think you are in a, a good situation uh, uh, in order to see those kinds of things. Perhaps I can follow up too in terms of research. Um, uh, there have been many examples where research, research projects have been done through outreach projects and the local clinicians haven't been included, included in the planning or the execution or the, uh, or the authorship of, of such research. And, uh, and I think one has to, has to impress upon a residents and others um, you know, who are doing research that they really have to engage uh, with the local local faculty and trainees uh, from that perspective. Now, do you think that it is important or maybe even essential for surgical learners, regardless of which country they're learning in, uh, to learn about global surgery and its impact? Do you think that should be part of our everyday curriculum? Yeah, I'll jump in. Uh, absolutely. You, you know, I, I don't have kids, so take what I'm going to say now with a grain of salt. But I, I think the best thing we can do for our children is to send them to a different country to learn a different way of life, a different philosophy. And the realization that what we say and do is not the be all and the end all. And, and I think it behooves our trainees to see that there are different ways of getting to the same goal in the end. And I think the more you travel, the more different people you see, regardless of whether it's in Vancouver or in Cape Town, I, I think it's, I think you get a whole different perspective. Um, what, do, what do you think, Johan? Yeah, and, and as I said right at the beginning, I think it's about creating an awareness about social justice and healthcare. And of course, we must remember that these disparities don't only only occur across the high income and low income so divide. If you look at North America itself, if you look at the maternal mortality rates in Washington, D.C., you know, between the poorer communities and the more wealthy communities, it's quite extreme. And um, so um, uh, so I think, you know, most certainly global surgery should start at home as well. And the same principles apply. And I think we really have to, have to, um, have to focus on the social justice component of healthcare. Yeah, and we're not, you know, within Canada, we're not without blame as well. Our indigenous populations, their life expectancy on average is 10 or 15 years less than uh, non-indigenous populations. The access to care is, is poor. If you control for every comorbidity, their outcomes in terms of car accidents is worse. Their outcomes in terms of diabetes is worse. It's more uh, than simply genetics that are that are playing a role in that. And I think that in order to understand social justice, you need to have seen or experienced social injustice. And that is very difficult for people that have grown up in extremely privileged areas. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up and trained in Washington, D.C. in my growing up life 
and my medical life were very different based on what Johan said. You know, once I was in the medical community, I was exposed to all of these injustices that were occurring right underneath my own nose. So I think awareness is really important, but to get to that awareness, perhaps you need formal education, but that'll be a subject for another time. The other question I had for you guys is, you know, I kind of see global surgery and those performing uh, things within global surgery to be a bit of a pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid, uh, you have things like short-term surgical trips, which have a lot of good intent in them, uh, but are by far the largest number of people and largest amount of time that can be dedicated to. That's the bottom of the pyramid that has the most to give. And then the top of the pyramid are those that are highly educated in policy and work for institutions such as the WHO to, to make changes globally. What do you think we need more of in that pyramid or less of? I'd love to hear your opinions. Yeah, perhaps I could start. Um, I think we're, I think what's been lacking over the years, um, I'm speaking from an African perspective, is that we haven't in Africa created a good enough framework or structure for for colleagues from first world countries um, to reach out to in in a meaningful meaningful fashion and uh, and and perhaps here i can speak about the african hidden egg society hidden egg fellowship program which is which is getting off the ground uh, so this year whereby we are um, are now going to start um, training hidden egg fellows in um, in about eight different centers in africa but we are including um, in the in this fellowship training partnerships we've established between training programs here and training programs um, in North America, um, so that's a, I think that's a very meaningful and a focused and a structured way of of, of doing outreach. Um, we also building in surgical trips, uh, sh- short sh- short trips into the fellowship training programs as well. So it's also part of that structure. And um, we starting an autology uh, so fellowship program in Cape Town so next month. And one of our colleagues from from University of Michigan will be giving a, a tutorial on Zoom once a week to to the fellow and, and to the residents. Yeah, um, but but once again, again, fitting into a structure which has been creating created here. Um, so, so I really think we should be be looking at creating structures um, um, in developing countries so that first world teachers um, of surgery can um, can really really maximize their contributions. Yeah, you're talking about changing the paradigm of the bottom of the pyramid, and rather have you know instead of having uh, the global north or high income countries coming over to teach what they want to teach, rather create the curriculum and the idea from the perspective of LMICs, and then to invite HIC countries to come over and teach those things. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. And uh, it's also about dignity as well. I work very hard in Africa to try and uh, you know, and establish so dignity among my colleagues that they that they can really stand on their own feet and they can compete internationally, and uh, and I think we're achieving that. And um, you know, because there are outstanding surgeons working under very difficult situations and doing work which which a North American surgeon wouldn't be be able to do do under those circumstances without being schooled locally and um and and this is all part of it as well you know that we invite people to join us on our terms um and i think that's the way we should be we should be working 
Well said. And Brian, you are very passionate about teaching global surgery. And a lot of the curriculum is focused at on policymaking and, and how to do things from a very systems-based way. What do you feel about the, the pyramid idea I was talking about earlier? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Johan uh, uh, said a very astute comment in there and that high-resource surgeons couldn't do certain things in a low-resource setting. And, and, and I, I can't emphasize that enough. Like times when I've been in Uganda, when I was operating, I would be sort of looking at things and, and I'm totally outside of my comfort zone. I don't have all the infrastructure I have at home, right down to a biomedical engineer who could fit fix the piece of equipment that, that broke in the middle of surgery. And, um, you know, you're very much out of your comfort setting. And often I think of the surgeons in Uganda are, are better equipped to deal with many of those things. And but, but I think what really needs to happen is the true exchange of knowledge and, and how that occurs, I think, in some respects is perhaps irrelevant. Within Canada, we have a Bethune Roundtable. It's an international surgical care meeting that happens on an annual basis. It rotates across the country. And uh, it was in, uh, I think, Toronto one time a number of years ago now. And I was listening to a talk by a pediatric surgery fellow from McGill uh, who was giving the talk with the pediatric fellow who was working in Kenya at the time. There was a uh, North American trained surgeon in Kenya who offered a fellowship. And the two fellows truly exchanged places for a month. The one came to Montreal in Canada and the Montreal fellow went to Kenya. And, and they presented basically the things that they saw, the things that they did, the things that they learned in each of those in each of those settings and and the two obviously are very different and yet complemented their training and you know when i'm in uganda it's not uncommon for them to suddenly leave and have to go and deal with an airway foreign body i bet you in one month in uganda they deal with more airway foreign bodies than than our all of our combined attendees at bc, BC children's hospital see in a year um, or perhaps even five years. And, you know, I think that true exchange of knowledge where we're each learning from the other uh, is what will push ahead uh, that social justice theme that, that Johan is so passionate about. Absolutely. And, and that's extremely well said. Now, keeping in mind that a lot of listeners to this program uh, will be a various training uh, levels in their career, but have some interest in global surgery. Is there anything that you would give to them as a final comment about global surgery and what you guys think is the best way to to begin it or to start to think about it? You know, maybe I can jump in there, Josh, partly because you had opened the the, the comment about you being involved in our, our master's program. And, and that was set up not because we thought we knew all the answers, but because we thought that it was a format that that uh, sharing of knowledge could occur. And your role in the master's program is not simply as a student. 
you have a phenomenal history in, in Ethiopia that I don't know if the listeners are aware about, Josh, but, but you bring a, a perspective that is invaluable for other students to hear. And, and, and what is written down on the, uh, it's all online. So what you're reading in, in some respects is just stimulating that discussion to happen. And, and I think the more that discussions like this in your podcast occur, the, the better off all will be. Because remember, we only do as well as those around us. And if those around us are not doing well, we will not do well. And, and in the healthcare is a, is a global commodity currently. We cannot live in our silos anymore. I think the pandemic has laid that bare. And Johan? Yeah, um, you know, there are so many, many levels that people can get involved with, but, but perhaps I could highlight a few which we haven't mentioned, and, that, and that's, that's around advocacy. Issues that are close to my heart is making educational materials freely available so via the internet. Um, you know, even the big North American societies still have, have some, of, some of their educational material behind, behind paywalls. Uh, making article publishing, so charges for open access publishing affordable for colleagues in low and middle, middle income countries to share their research. And then um, and also um, trying to focus on establishing and strengthening training institutions in low and middle income countries through partnerships with, uh, with high income institutions. And the other thing I can say to, to the young trainee is that, that what's wonderful from attending sort of meetings around global surgery is that, that there are all these like-minded people trying to do good. And it's really... It's a wonderful forum. It's a very non-competitive forum and a, and a very welcoming forum. And I'd really encourage them them to to attend the global surgery sort of sessions at the society meetings and at their own institutions. Well, I wanted to thank the both of you as well as Cynthia as my co-host in joining us today. Uh, this has all been fascinating information, a great discussion, and everything that you mentioned today will be down in the comments with links so that our learners can explore all of these open access and educational tools uh, that were mentioned today. Um, thank you guys so much, and thank you for joining. Well, thank you very much, Cynthia, and thank you very much, Josh, for the opportunity, and thanks, Brian. Yeah, thank you, guys. Uh, great work. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as the editing, writing, and production teams for making this episode possible. Look in the description of this episode for a link to additional resources such as a written summary of the episode and citations for references that were made to key global surgery articles. Visit headmirror.com global surgery podcast for the full list of our episodes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.